Hello and welcome again to Blow the Line, uh, where we talk about movies from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. Uh, I was an AD in Los Angeles for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today we're going to be talking about Panic. Uh, it was a movie released in 2000. It was uh, written and directed by Henry Brumel uh, and starred William H. Macy, uh, along with a fairly impressive supportive cast, which included John Ritter, Nev Campbell, Donald Sutherland, Tracy Ullman, and Barbara Bain. Rotten Tomatoes scores it at uh, 91%, and its critics' consensus is this quirky little film about a gangster in therapy feels fresh and well-crafted. A pretty positive review, but positive or not, that's not what we're here to talk about today. I've got three guests from the crew of that show. Uh, First up, Giovanni Lampassi. Gio, you were our chief lighting technician or gaffer. Welcome to Below the Line. Hello, thanks. Somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because I don't know what IMDb does for their algorithm to calculate this, but IMDb says you're known for Torque, The Reaping, Doug Lyman's Go, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where I know you're currently the cinematographer and occasional director. That's correct. As an aside, I did a couple of day-playing stuff on Torque, but I don't recall if what I was doing there actually overlapped with you or if I said hi and I've just forgotten. You were probably pretty busy on that one. Well, we we had a huge second unit, so it might have been that if you were called in, you might have been doing the second unit stuff. And, you know, it was a a horrible film, but at the time it was a really big budget film. So I know that uh, the infrastructure was really large and it was a large crew. So I think that's exactly what it was. I was on second unit and we'll do a podcast on that one sometime. Mm. Uh, (laughs) That one might be fun. Uh, Also with us today, (laughs) thanks, Gio. Uh, Also with us today is Wendy Lampasi. Wendy, you were the key second AD on Panic. Yes, I was. Welcome. IMDb tells me you're known for Triple X State of the Union, House of a Thousand Corpses, Grandma's Boy, and Paparazzi. And I know that, like me, you have left the business. I have left left the business. And three of those movies, I only did partial of the movie. Only Paparazzi, I did the whole movie. So I think it's funny that I'm known for those because those are not really my movies. I just came in and helped. Of the work you did, what is the film that you would say you're known for? I would think um, a couple Ice Cube movies, uh, All About the Benjamins. Dirt, the two seasons with Courtney Cox. Dirt's another one where you and I could probably get together. I did the pilot on Dirt, but then wasn't there for the show. Um, And uh, we could probably talk about that sometime as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. In our final chair uh, is Scott Buckwald. Scott, you were the property master on Panic, and you're known for The Prestige, Race to Witch Mountain, Cellular, and Piranha 3D. You just wrapped up season three of Queen of the South. And uh, what else you got going on? Uh, what else have I got going on? Queen of the South kept me going for six months. So right now I kind of have family going on, which is really nice. For myself, I was a very green production assistant on Panic. I know that's, I think, where I met all of you for the first time. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Wendy, you, and I, you and I knew each other at that point, correct? We did Drowning Mona already. Drowning Mona was before Panic. I don't I think, think so. so. No, I think we did no, it first because I worked with you guys on Drowning Mona, but then I left right. halfway oh. through to start the DGA training program. And so they actually, I think they might've come out in reverse order, but I think we filmed Panic first. We'll keep Scott around till the end. So if it comes up later, yeah. we, we can revisit. I think maybe a good place to start with Panic is to talk about Henry Brumel and the set he ran. Best known, I think, for his time on Homicide Life on the Street, uh, the years he did on that TV show. And then 
I know they also had a movie that he was involved in. Um, and I think he had certain ideas about how to do a crime story. And I think that's some of what we saw on the set of Panic. I remember Henry being an incredibly intelligent and sweet man. I mean, he was, he, he really had sort of what I consider an inclusive film set demeanor where I think that he valued everybody on the crew and he was willing to hear and listen to anybody's idea or, you know, anything that was going on. And I think that that, um, I feel, I feel like panic was his first directing gig and, and he was coming about it. Like, I'm not going to be a pompous ass. I'm going to be, this is going to be a community where we have a creative environment. That's interesting. You say that I didn't know it was his first movie. I do remember, at that point in my career, I was still used to directors being very over the top. And when you would walk on the set, you would never have to second guess who the director was. Henry seemed to very much blend in. He was very, I remember him being very quiet and very, very literate in a lot of ways. I remember my first meeting with him, we instantly started talking about classic books and a lot of books that he read. He was very, very well read. I remember he was yeah. listing off book after book after book that if I had heard of it, I know for sure I hadn't read it. And I just remember, I remember thinking Panic was going to have almost an American Playhouse feel to it. And in some ways it, it did. It was not a multiplex kind of movie by any means. Yeah, I agree. As a PA, I was more concerned about locking up straight crowds <laughs> than I was about the politics on set. But I don't know whether I got the impression from being there or just later that as inclusive as he was and someone about the release, he had a vision of it that did not necessarily match the vision of the producers on that. I know some of the scenes, the way he staged them, I should probably note there will be spoilers for Panic in the course of this conversation. Um, but those final scenes and so the final shootout and deaths and such that happen, happen in a very atypical way, if you will, as you yeah. said, not for versus a multiplex movie. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we, sh we shot it anamorphic. I remember Henry and Jeff Jer, the cinematographer, you know, they really wanted the frame to tell the story and allow things to happen within the frame. The, the opening sequence is classic of that, where we're at the art center and you see him uh, walking up to the person. Uh, he kills the person and you have Kim, who is at the coffee cart. Uh, with her back to the murder and she doesn't even see it. And, and the whole thing just happens in a static frame. Henry had a really classic sense of what cinema should be. And I remember distinctly hearing him say that they were, they were doing cinema, you know, where he, he wanted it to be like uh, an Italian film where it was just, you allow the frame to tell the story and you don't do it in cuts and you compose something that's beautiful. And I think that that was really atypical for a lot of action movies where nowadays we have, you know, you have 150 cuts within 60 seconds. Well, and Gene, if I can have you continue, I also imagine it's sort of a for what you're doing as the gaffer, that can be a challenge as well to have the entire scene lit up front. Or do you find that an easier approach than sort of the shifting cameras and, and moving lights around? Um, I don't, you know, I think that uh, I think that both have their challenges. Um, one of the advantages to lighting a shot such as, you know, where you're going to have the camera here, it's going to maybe do a slow dolly or whatever, is that you're, you're lighting one thing. 
Whereas if you know there's going to be 50 camera setups in the scene, then it's like, okay, well, now I have to think think forward 50 times because I know where the camera is going to be going. How am I going to keep the lighting continuous throughout cameras being in different positions? So in some ways it's it's difficult because you have to really you have to really work uh, the frame and make the frame beautiful. But in other ways it's it's easier because you just and are doing, you know, one composition. I, I, you know, it doesn't matter which way you go. There's technical challenges in, in everything that we do. And solving those problems is part of what we do. Speaking of solving those problems, I know, uh, Gio, you'd shared a story earlier about uh, some of the problems on set. And I think it was you and Scott that talked about some prop issues. Um, yeah, it wasn't specifically about prop issues, but it was a conversation Scott, Dave, and I had. We were on the, Dave. the top. Dave Clark. Dave Clark. <laughs> All right. Doesn't ring a bell. Dave Clark. Dave Clark, our assistant prop master on the show, and obviously working yeah. close with Scott. He might have been your assistant prop master. I <laughs> <laughs> so we were having, I don't know if you remember this, but this is something that stuck with me throughout my, like everything I've done in film. And we were talking about personalities on set and um, directors and and you said that you know it doesn't matter what the director says today and what they said yesterday and the example you used is if in pre-production the director says that they want the actor to be carrying a red umbrella and all of a sudden you show up and on the day and they say that they want a blue umbrella there's no point in saying yeah but you said or you know this is not what we planned you know it's like it's it's changed for some reason, and now your job is to get the right. little umbrella. You're not going to win by arguing or by also, trying to, you know. It's not a matter of winning or losing. At the end of the day, the director is my client. I'm not going to get anywhere by arguing a point. There's no point in being wrong for being right. Yes. Yeah. There, there is certain exceptions to that. An umbrella is an easy fix. But I have had instances where budget is limited. And even on the biggest features, budget is still an issue. I have had times where it is at the very last minute, the day before, and a wedding cake that was supposed to be two layers and all chocolate. Now they wanted three layers and <laughs> vanilla, vanilla. And they wanted a different shape. And sometimes the Aladdin's lamp thing doesn't always apply. Yes. But when that happens, when that happens, it can't be me putting my foot down and saying, look, jackass, I'm, I can't do it. There has yeah. to be a way of explaining to that person that I will do everything I possibly can, but let's both agree right now that, that this request is a little out there. And it's, it, happens, it happens on television more so than features. With features, I have eight weeks to prep 100 pages. And usually by the time that shooting has begun, the director has forgotten about prep. Everything that we talked about is locked. He's now or she's now concerned with the shooting on set for the day, where television tends to be more uh, of a work in progress. And I know from an AD standpoint, on a feature, the AD works for the director, where on television, the AD tends to work more for the producers. Right. So when I get a director's request on a television show, I want to be respectful to the director and his vision. But at the same point, I realize that it is show business. And if I 
give all of the show to the director, I am going to have to answer for a bad business call to the producers. Yeah. But I'm glad you remembered that. That's that's yeah. No, it's a it's a conversation that um, that has stuck with me throughout the years, and I always remember that. That it's like you know there, as you said, there are exceptions to the rule, but you know for the most part, your job is to be flexible and to things change at, in a moment's notice. And I always say that um, it's a, it's probably a really poor example, but you know what we do is like what fighter pilots say that they do, where. 90% of the time they're just flying straight and level and it's, you know, they're twiddling their thumbs and then for 30 seconds, it's sheer panic and anybody can fly the plane in good weather. It's when the shit hits the fan that, you know, that's what makes you a professionalist, how you handle it, how you solve the problem and how you continue on your day and make your day. And having done queen of the South, it was even more so because that was a huge, huge show, very weapons heavy, a lot of bills and a lot of very heavy prop show. And we're shooting it in Dallas. So everything has to come from L.A. And mm -hmm. the one thing I would do in my in my director's meetings. Hey, Scott. I would, yes. I'm going to interrupt you because I want you to save that story for when we do the Queen of the South podcast. I don't want you to, to do it now. <laughs> no, we're going to do general stuff now. Yeah, but, you know, just make it a teaser. Don't uh, don't don't give the whole. <laughs> All right, Scott has just walked off set, but while he's while he's regrouping himself, so uh, typical. <laughs> while he's getting set, I do want to follow up with some general comments, uh, Gia. When you were talking about the as the military metaphor with the pilot, you know, I think that uh, as you guys are aware, but our audience probably isn't. Before I came to Hollywood, I was myself in the Air Force for five years, and one of my lessons was just the way a movie set is organized. I believe is is the same as the military, where you push the uh, expertise to the bottom of the organization. Everybody knows their part very well uh, so that when things change, people aren't stuck waiting for leadership to tell them what to do. People understand how the change affects them because they're experts at that and they know how they relate to the other parts so that the parts can self-adjust. And the entire yeah. organization can change very quickly if, if whether it's an actor doesn't show up or the enemy someplace different or something changes, what are the effects going to be? People aren't waiting for direction like some organizations. Instead, everybody's an expert. As, and you want the experts and to some degree decision making as low as you can possibly push it. Really what it is as an AD standpoint is about follow through. And so there's a lot of, you know, as we always say in the film industry, there's a lot of hurry up and waiting. It's like hurry, 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 and then wait forever. And then hurry, 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 and then wait forever. But I know when I would ask anyone, I want a production assistant to to Scotty, <laughs> you know, to anyone on his set, if I need something done, that means drop what you're doing and get it done now. Or prioritize, you know, tell me, hey, no, I gotta finish this first and then whatever. But the last thing as a assistant director on, a, on any show that you wanna see is you having asked someone and they don't react. They're just sitting there or they continue their conversation or, you know, when it's not about the, what you're shooting. And I think that probably goes for all of us is that person in charge of your department is the one that is a priority when they ask you to do something. But secondly is part of being in the film industry that I always said is it's not brain surgery. We're not saving anyone's life. We're, we're here to entertain. And so therefore it should be something we actually enjoy coming to set to do ourselves. It's like, you don't want to come to set and be miserable at work. I've done a couple of shows when I was brand new and I was miserable on the job. 
and I didn't stand up for myself. I didn't say anything. I just thought, okay, I'm never going to get hired again if I don't continue this show. And so as a assistant director and someone who's kind of in charge of a lot of people, you know, we wanted to make it fun, but every aspect has to be fun, but the job has to come first and the job has to get done. And then you have lots of time to have fun when you're waiting. A lot of that goes back to the, it can't be us against them. Yes. I, I do find that's a big problem on movie sets. You'll always get people going, oh, he doesn't know what she's doing or she doesn't know what she's doing. And there's always this feeling like you're somehow getting screwed over. That's really not the case. Everybody has a very well-defined job to do. And sometimes the jobs might not mesh as well as you would hope. But if you have a little bit of understanding and empathy for everyone else's position, you do find that having good relationships between the departments makes the overall production a lot more fun. And I know the shows that years later that I have the best memories of are memories like, Wendy, you and I haven't seen each other now probably, I think the last time I saw you was, uh, or soon after that, you were selling Girl Scout cookies. Oh, yeah. My closest friends. And it's all because of the yes. years that we worked together, how great that relationship was. And it's kind of held those gaps. It is. It is. The, the better and more cohesive a crew is and the better you get along. And it is about respecting and having empathy for other people's positions, but it's also about respecting. That's from the top dog, which Henry Brumell was amazing with that. He respected every single person on his crew. Therefore, he got the respect. It's not you have to earn respect, but you also have to give respect. You can't just because you're a department head treat everyone else like crap. Well, I think that's a nice opportunity to uh, bring it back around to Panic specifically. Wendy, you alluded earlier to how Henry ran the set and that it was inclusive. Oh. I wanted to add that as a new PA, working with you and then our first AD, John Nelson, and the team you guys had put together, I really I learned a lot of lessons about how it can be done and how things fit. And I think I carried them uh, into other jobs as well. And what other examples might you guys have of how things worked well on the set of Panic? Uh, scheduling panic and working like in pre-production and stuff. Henry was such a delight to work with that he just, he made it fun. He made it fun in the office. He was relaxed about things. He wasn't like, he was either having a power issue or um, just freaking out about everything. He wasn't a stress basket. And so it actually from pre-production all the way through the movie, it was fun and it was organized. I don't remember having a lot of scheduling issues, even with the actors, because everyone was there because they loved Henry. Which is really amazing. I mean, when you when you look at the cast, I was just IMD being the cast. It was really a large feature cast for a very small, humble movie. There was an amazing, amazing cast in that movie. It was one multi-star after another. And the yeah. fact that Henry, who was new to the directing area, was able to hold such control and that the show did work as smoothly as it did is really a credit to everybody from the actors having respect for the material and everything really gelling. And it really is a good example of how well something can work because the movie really was, it was a menu for disaster. I mean, you could have had, you could have had actors who demanded a lot more and a staff that wasn't capable of providing that. As far as scheduling goes, you could have started having actors saying, well, I'm not working these days, I'm not working those days, really using their clout. I, I yeah. never felt that that happened. Yeah, it could have very easily been a lot of disasters. And really, my memories of it, it was just really smooth and really, really enjoyable. And I will say, 
it's rare when that happens that everyone just works together so beautifully, like everyone from everyone on the show. I don't honestly remember any problems. And I do, I work with, to get to the actors, I've done three movies with Donald Sutherland and he is not the easiest person to work with, but on, on Panic, it was my first introduction to him. And even he was easy. Dottie, you remember this, that he only ate fruit. You know, there's a well, lot of eating scenes and he only would eat Fruit. <laughs> right, but I remember one day we put out this huge fruit salad, and the first take he ate the entire fruit yeah. salad, and yeah. he was really just supposed to pick at it. And I'm always yeah. pretty good, especially with food, of having replacements. So we had what I figured was the amount that he should eat, and we had I don't know, four takes, but he ate everything the first take. So now yeah. I only had enough replenishment at the rate he was eating it for another take. And I do remember sending Danny Clark or Dave. Dave Clark. Yeah. Um, I remember having to send him to the grocery store to buy fruit. And yeah. every take, he ate all of it. And he got sick at the end. And I remember him coming up to us at the end of the, at the, end of the take going, I've learned a very important lesson today. Don't eat all the food. <laughs> I thought was kind of funny because a guy who had been in the business as long as he has yeah, for that long, yeah, that long, you kind of figured, yeah, you normally don't eat all the fruit. You just kind of pick. Okay. So Donald, he's, yeah, he's really great to work with. He's very uh, precise and amazing actor, but he's very precise about what he wants when he's not on set too. And so, you know, I, I remember even with costumes that he wanted a particular undershirt. You're never going to see it, but it had to be a particular brand period. And it was an expensive brand. I mean, it was way above panic budget level. But even, but he's so, you know, on set, he's so professional. But I remember for me that we did have such a media cast. I think Neff just came off of um, Party of Five. Mm -hmm. And this was one of her <clears throat> first features. And Neff Campbell. And then for me, I don't get that excited about actors, but having John Ritter on the cast, was amazing because I grew up watching John and Three's Company. That was one of my favorite shows in you know middle school and high school. So working with John Ritter and finding out that he generally was such the nicest guy. I remember John Nelson getting upset with with me because John uh, John Ritter and I had hit it off from day yeah. one. I mean, between him and me and Dave, I have <laughs> never had more fun. And normally, I always try to keep a certain professional distance with the actors. I don't really like becoming chummy. I mean, I'll always be friendly, but I had worked with John on a movie a couple years earlier. A and you TV mean movie. John Ritter or something else with John Nelson? With, with John Ritter. ID. Okay. And I remember John Nelson getting frustrated because in the middle of a take, John Ritter would like look over to me and go, are, are you happy with that? I mean, if, if it's good for yeah. props, then it's good for me. Or he yeah. really loved getting us into little <laughs> routines. And it would usually start the crew laughing, which when the crew started laughing, that was really all of the the ticket that Dave Clark and I would need to keep going to, to remember why I spent a good part of my junior and senior year in the principal's office. <laughs> I gotta say, whatever, whichever movie it was, and if it was Panic, was there a house in Panic that had two floors? It might have been Panic. Because my first introduction to you and, and Dave or Danny Clark, it was like on day one of the show, I walked up the stairs and there was a bathroom at the top of the staircase. <laughs> and I think, I'm pretty sure it was Dave. Dave was sitting there with his pants down, sitting on the toilet with the newspaper, of course, that's covering the fact that he has his clothes on, his underwear on. And he was sitting and he was like, oh my God. And he the been. I have a series of photos. I also have pictures of us doing that. I think it might've been Drowning Mona. We were in the Northridge Mall. 
and I have pictures of me and Dave. We were shooting around close to Christmas and Santa was there. So we have a picture of me, Dave, and Santa. Santa is sitting in the middle, and Dave and I have our pants down around that our ankles was, reading the newspaper. Yeah, the set was fun. And but John, anyway, back to actors. John was very fun, and he was very sweet to work with. And then William H Macy, I, he always had. I can't. Walter. He had Walter. His um, Bernie's not in with him in the trailer always. And I just remember whenever he was in the trailer, he was playing. I, it wasn't guitar. a guitar. Was it a guitar or was it a? Yeah, he was always playing music, and so that was fun. And I didn't really know who William H Macy was at that time. I think he was. Was he newer at that? I don't know his I background. Heard, was. I had heard of him. I can't remember what I knew him from at the time, but he had been doing mostly the indie circuit okay. at the time. But also, I mean, extreme. I didn't find Donald Sutherland as approachable. It was very much just business with him, yes. but. With William H. Macy, I remember having nice conversations with him. He was the kind of guy he would sit at the lunch table during crew lunch and always just delightful to talk to. Tracy Allman was. was the same thing. I loved hanging out with Tracy Allman. That, she was really one of my favorite things about that movie. Really? Oh, really? Yeah, because I, I, I loved her sense of comedy. And she was mm -hmm. just somebody for me to have worked with her. She was totally out of the blue. I never expected I'd be working with Tracy Allman. That was a weird casting choice, I think. It was a very odd casting it, choice. It was, it was. She did but good, but... Because I'm such a movie buff, I love just talking to her about stuff. And mm -hmm. she was, she loved holding court. And I really loved that part of the, the show with her. I don't think I had a whole lot of other than business interaction with Tracy. Nev, I talked to you. Nev was a, a doll. She was a sweetheart. And with Nev, she was on um, hiatus from Party of Five. My first job as a DJ Trini was on Party of Five. I think during maybe not oh. their last season, maybe the next to last, I was able to 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 bring up Panic and say we worked together. I don't recall if she remembered me from Panic, and nor would I can recall a story that there would have been a reason for her to remember me. I am reminded of a story about Bill Macy, though. One of the final scenes when he's driving up to the house, for whatever reason, John Nelson, our first AD, asked me to be in the back seat of the car down on the floor with a radio so I could give yeah. him the cue when they're supposed to drive. And so I'm down there, I'm crouched, you know, giving him his space, not sure what kind of moment he needs. And he looks back and he says, hey, and I say, hey, and he says, what's your name? And I said, Skid. And he pauses and he said, that's an interesting nickname for the fact that we're about to do a car stunt. Now, there wasn't particularly a heavy <laughs> car stunt in it, um, but uh, but it made me laugh. And uh, I, I, I just think he set a really nice tone on set. He was a sweetheart. Definitely one of those moments that I think, Wendy, have bonded you and I together for always is with, with Barbara Bain one day. <laughs> we were- it was The crying scene? The crying scene. We were shooting at the, we were shooting at the house and it's, it's the scene where, we'll, uh, where Donald oh, Sutherland uh, gets killed and she discovers him. It, it's hard enough not to talk on set to begin with, but when you feel like you're in fourth grade and the teacher is getting mad and you have that suppressed laughter and you're doing everything you can to hope not to just totally lose it. Wendy is standing on one side of the camera. I'm standing on the other. Barbara is just I kind of felt going way overboard in the, oh, my God, and just like, oh, no. And Wendy and I, we meet eyes, and it was comic romance at its best because the minute the two of us saw each other, no, everyone else was just kind of being professional and dealing with it.
But the minute that Wendy and I locked eyes, we were both thinking the same thing. And I just remember it was endless take after take because oh, I was doing my best not to bust out laughing. And it was just and impossibly hard to be respectful. And I know that you and I have brought it up many times over the years. It, it definitely become our own little in-joke. But it was just a, one of those moments that you treasure as the years go by because you really do. Re when I see the, sh the movie now, I remember exactly where I was when that was happening. It worked for the movie because they kept it really short, but it was, it was like 30 minutes of her, no! <laughs> And I'm sure she's a lovely actress, <laughs> but we had issues. Okay, now to Barbara uh, and Donald, we had issues on set with that. Donald was such a, um, he yeah. hated cigarette smoke, <clears throat> and she was a heavy smoker. I remember the rule coming out that, that if you were a crew member who smoked, you couldn't smoke anywhere near him or he couldn't no. see it. No, yeah, he, he was... He tried to fire somebody on the next block at one point, I think. I remember that. I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't even with the crew who was smoking. <laughs> um, he, he is, he's a little quirky. And I remember one scene that they were supposed to be sitting on the couch together. And instead, they ended up being in two separate chairs and they barely holding hands in between the two chairs at one point. But he, he couldn't be next to her because she, she just, you know, to him, she reeked the smoke. I never smelled it, but she was a heavy smoker. Speaking of, uh, you mentioned about uh, base camp and such, and I think one of the yeah. one of the challenges that I recall from Panic is we actually were all we did a lot of location work. I remember mm -hmm. shooting at uh, was it Musso and Frank's we shot at, and then yeah. I remember that was the first day we were at Musso and Frank's. That might have been the day when I was doing some sort of lockup around base camp. I think we were around the corner with the trailers. It was there or wherever we were for the uh, Nev's apartment scene, and. Um, uh, Felicity oh, Huffman. Yeah, that's where the bathroom was. <laughs> was it the Nev's apartment scene? Was the that... same day. Yes. Oh, same day? Were they at the same location? Stuff. Same location. I mean, we split the location on that day, I think. Yeah. We did her apartment, and then we did Musso and Frank. On the lessons learned, it's a good idea probably to be familiar with not just what your cast looks like, but kind of who else might be visiting them because Felicity Huffman came up to me on the street and said uh, she wanted to know where uh, Bill Macy's trailer was. And I was like, okay, uh, uh, let me check. And uh, I got on the radio and I think I called over to set it. I don't know if it was you, Wendy, or someone else I spoke to or John, but uh, I said, yeah, I've got someone here to see Bill Macy. And they say, who is it? And I asked her, who is it? And she goes, it's Felicity, his wife. And I was like, <laughs> Ah, this is something I should know. Let me show you where to be. And so you can't know everything. The thing is, is that you can't know everything, but what you can be is you can be uh, courteous and open and, and do exactly what you did where you, you were like, okay, let me do it. You're never going to know all the answers and there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know, let me check and I'll get back to you. You know, but then you have to make sure you follow up on it. Um, the worst thing is when you when you ask a PA something, you know, where's such and such or what's going on, and they say, I don't know. And then they leave it. And you're like, but your job is to figure it out. So either you're gonna do it or you're, you know, it goes back to what we were saying earlier. I feel like coming in as a new PA, I did have those five years of military behind me. And I think in some ways that helped me that it wasn't just while well, I'm on a movie set, but really what we talked about before that the mission is important. We're all there to get the mission done. Um, and at the same time, I'm not sure that the military is always 
a good lesson for people on a film set because I know in uniform, if we ever had a disagreement, we just have to check each other's shoulders and we can see who gets the final decision on this. Like we can disagree, but one of us is going to, one of us has the authority to make the decision. But on a movie set, right. particularly as an AD, it's much more about like everybody's actual loyalties is to their department head or who, who brought them into the job. And so it's much more about if you come in with a military background, you try to sort of be the officer on the set and you're telling the electricians and the grips that they have to do this or that without getting to know them or without convincing them why they should follow your, your guidance on stuff, you're going to fail. Uh, that was, that was my other lesson. True. Yeah. I, yeah. That comes down to how you ask one. But Skate, I remember when we interviewed you, when you came into the office for your interview and you came in very, <laughs> very, yeah, your beard and everything, very professional and very, very military. And you left and I, and I immediately talked to John. I'm like, he's going to be so good on set. And John's like, he's overdressed on the interview. And I'm like, I'll calm down. <laughs> Don't relax. <laughs> I think you came in in a suit. Hey, you know, part of the film industry, you never come interview in a suit. <laughs> I would, yeah, I think, let's see. So I had done a uh, film for free that was like three weeks long as a PA. Yeah. And there I had met a locations guy who got me on to, but I'm a cheerleader. And then, but on a lockup on that movie, I had met a guy in a house who... <laughs> I forget what his background was, but he knew John Nelson. And so he said, I'm going to oh. give your resume to somebody I know working on film. And then I got the introduction. It was probably the first time I had actually had an interview. PA, or honestly, since I got out of the military, probably the only first, probably the first interview I'd ever had. And uh, I don't remember that exactly. But yeah, I think I eventually uh, realized that suit's not so good for hanging your equipment <laughs> belt and pockets for sides and all the other things that uh, eventually came with growing up in the industry. Did you um, talk about the cinematography on it? Which yeah, no, I. Well, we did. Pretty no, about I don't the, know. no, about the tables at Musso and Frank. Yeah, well, I don't. I don't know. I mean, Wendy. I think Wendy has a slightly different version, so I don't know if my memory is one hundred percent correct. But one of the things I always, I always tell people when they're new that one of the things you do, one of the keys to success in the film business, is you listen to your boss's boss. And that way, when you hear your boss's boss telling them some, you know, something, you're one step ahead, or you can be the the one that does it. So, Henry and um, Jeff, our cinematographer, were talking about the scene where Donald and uh, Bill are in the booth at Musso and Frank's, and in that scene, the waiter comes up and and has a conversation with the both of them, and they were talking about how to cover the the waiter and i remember jeff saying something to the effect of what happens if we never see the waiter's face we only we don't their body only enters the frame and you see them from like the shoulders down they started talking about it and you know through the conversation henry was like i really like the idea of not having anybody from the outside world enter into bill macy's life that he's that it's him and his dad and they're, he's faced with this, you know, this problem. So then Henry said like, all right, let's do it through the whole film. And there was a scene that I think has been cut where Bill Macy was at the diner and he was at the booth. And when the waitress comes up and she asks him for his order or gives him the check or something like that, you never see her face either. When we just rewatched it, I, that scene wasn't in, but I distinctly remember there were two, there was at least, one or two other times where you have a supporting character coming up and you never ever see their face. You never see their mouth. You ne you only hear them. 
And I thought, number one, it was brilliant because I think it's one of the subtle things in the movie that people do not notice, but it affects the way that you view the film. And two, I thought that it was brilliant because it showed me that it doesn't matter if you're the director, you're the cinematographer, you're the production designer. If somebody has an idea on set, then it's valid. The film industry is the most collaborative art form in the world. If you don't allow people to be creative and to have an input, then you're squandering a resource. And I'm not saying that you have to accept every idea because, I mean, let's face it, some ideas are bad, but you never know where a good idea is going to come from. And you have to be humble enough to accept that other people have ideas. And when Henry said, yeah, let's run with it, I was like, this is a magic moment that I just witnessed. It was, it was the first time I had seen something like that. As a bummer for the actors who didn't get their faces shown. <laughs> I was going to say, great wait, wait, you got one line and you're building your reel. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. maybe not so great for the day playing actors, but, uh, uh, yeah. but it, I think it works for the film. And I think, uh, yeah, certainly uh, watching it again with that in mind, it, it again speaks to Henry's vision. And, and as you said, his inclusiveness, that it wasn't his idea from the start. Uh, he took it from Jeff and, and ran with it. It is a film worth seeking out. I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this have never heard of the movie. I, I just oh, looked, okay. I believe it's on Amazon Prime. It really is worth checking out. It, it really moves along. It's, it's a really nice two hours of movie <laughs> viewing. One of um, my favorite, well, one of my favorite things to do in the film industry, well, actually one of my favorite things to do, my least favorite things to do is, as an assistant director is dealing with extras. John Nelson and I always had fun doing like quirky things with our extras. Like the big extra scenes, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that, you know, and it's even 50 people in a room, like on dirt, where you have the news staff and you're all telling them all to go which way. For me, I always tell them, okay, you guys know it's a newsroom. This is where you start. Figure it out. Just go do your thing. Just don't run into each other and don't group in one area. But you guys are actors, so act. Act. Just be quiet and act. But to do when you only have a few extras in a scene, John Nelson and I always had um, a lot of fun making them do something in the background that was, you may or may not notice in the movies, but it's always something fun. But there's a scene with, um, in the therapist's office when he's, it's like this heavy, heavy scene where William H. Macy is kind of divulging, this is what I do for a living. And so we had, John and I were looking at her like, okay, well, it's supposed to be an office building, but you don't see anything. There's just windows. I said, let's get a window cleaner. It was a really weird house because it had floor to ceiling windows in it and it looked like it could be in an office building. So I just said, let's get a window cleaner. And, and so we got it, we got a guy that's a window cleaner and we made it so he was going really slow. And we, our hope was that they'd have this going on in the background as you have this really serious scene. And it's a little bit, you hear it a little bit in one scene, but you, you don't, it didn't end up getting cut into the movie. And I was really bummed about that. And it's supposed to be like such this one thing where you're like, and they and, ended up doing it in the Matrix. Yeah, I was going to say, years later, they did it in the scene where. Uh, yeah, like a heavy scene in the Matrix where there was a window cleaner. And it was, you know, his squeegee was like squeaking along when they're having this intense conversation. But I just want to point out that I was the first one to do that, <laughs> whether it made the movie or not. But we did have a window cleaner really slowly cleaning a window during a very intense scene. We had a guy out there. You know, I don't remember a lot of um, background from the 
from the movie and whether that's an account of um, sort of like the framing and sort of the intention of making this their world, Gio, that you were talking about, or uh, were we limited on on budget of this? Was I, I, I'm trying to remember which scenes would have been heavier. I, I'm thinking that I, we did a lot of shooting at the art center, but it was almost all yeah. single shots of him on the escalator or like yes. the opening scene, him walking and, and doing the assassination. No, it wasn't a heavy background show at all. And it probably was more budget, but also because of the isolation that you wanted the amazing to feel. I'm sure Henry or Jeff or whoever yeah. had that thought in it too. Um, there was a bowling alley and we had a scene, you know, a couple of scenes with extras. There was Moose um, and Franks, obviously. There was the Griffith Park playground <clears throat> where they were supposed to be picking up for school. Um, and then him walking the dog at night. Walking the dog at night, you know, the extras in there. And then our big extras, which I'm sure Scotty will remember, which we didn't even have to pay for the day, were all the seagulls in the parking lot when we were shooting down in Manhattan Beach. <laughs> that they kept saying, "We want seagulls on the ground. We want seagulls on the ground." So Scotty, was it the PAs? Was these skin? It was either you or Scotty that were like. Well, we were going to craft service. <laughs> we were getting loads of bread from craft service. Yeah. Pairing it up. Because they wanted them to fly off as soon as the car. But it was just so funny. It's like the seagulls would come everywhere except where we wanted them to. And then they'd fly off when we didn't want them to. <laughs> it was like this. I remember that scene where you're just like, oh, come on. It's just seagulls. And then we had, uh, speaking of jokes and making this that kind of fun, Glenn Gaynor was a new producer, newer producer. <laughs> we had done a movie with them. But uh, Glenn is very interesting, but he, at that time, he was also very, he was actually a producer, but he was newer than a lot of the other of us that had been around on set for a while and doing movies for a while. And we were shooting either in Venice or Santa Monica or Miranda, no, anyway, near Santa Monica Airport. And we said, Burbank, Glenn, it was near Burbank. Was it near? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, anyway, we said, can you call the airport and ask them to divert the traffic? <laughs> And he actually he actually called like, the tower. He did. He called the tower. He came back. Yeah, he came back. He came back to John. He's like, and and Henry was in on the joke too. Yeah. Um, and uh, he came back and he said, I called the tower, and they said that they'd love to help, but there's nothing that they can do. <laughs> you know, I mean, he really thought that if he called and said, you know, we're making a movie, can you divert air traffic? And it's just like. That's what, so insane. Well, what he thought was that the team that he had hired to do the movie would guide him well. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and so he didn't necessarily think to that next step, which I'm sure he did on every movie since, about what are the actual yeah. implications of of, uh, of of what I'd be about to do. And more power to him. He tried. He tried to say yes. He never said no. <laughs> yeah. You know, but, the, yeah, the, the pranks kind of went wild, I think, on that show. I don't... We, we had pulled a prank on Glenn. There was one day when we were shooting at the at the uh, Donald Sutherland's house in like Valley Village, was it? Yeah. Something like that. And they needed a rain effect and they didn't have effects there that day. And it is definitely not a prop job to do that, nor are we even allowed to do it. But, you know, Dave and I were resourceful and uh, we had set uh, a hose rig and PVC piping up over the window and uh, attached it to the spigot and we made it rain. And Glenn was all happy about it and blah, blah, blah. And the next day, Dave calls him up on the cell phone. We had gotten, <laughs> remember this? We yes. had gotten a PA. We had gotten some woman, some woman PA to call him up. 
and Glenn answered his cell phone. And the PA goes, hi, this is local IOTC 44. I have whoever the, the head of IOTC was at the time on the phone for you. Can you hold? And Glenn said, yes. And we're on set. And we make him kind of sweat it out. And then Dave gets on the phone pretending he's a union official saying that production had that he had been grieved for allowing his prop department to do a rain effect. And Glenn immediately starts apologizing and all of this. And Dave is acting very, very stern and go, no, you don't understand. We're, we're shutting you down. Yeah, and, I remember that. <laughs> and, and Glenn, Glenn is like, well, no, you can't shut us down. It goes, well, no, it's already been done. And we're going to have union reps at the set soon to pull your crew and we will be picketing and there'll be a fine attached as well. Glenn is just freaking out because, you know, like Gio said, he's still new at this. And his first time out the gate to have a show shut down by the union is probably not a, a career making thing. So <laughs> I don't remember how we let him off of the joke. No, I I it, it took a while, I think, before you did, because I remember that because we we could see him. Cause I don't remember where we were, but it was somewhere that we were outside. And so we could right. see him on the phone right. wherever we were. So we were just all watching him. <laughs> just now, melting down. You know what? Mean. We did do we did do panic. We, we did one. panic before Drowning Mona because when we did Drowning Mona, uh, John Nelson had loved that joke, and he wanted us to do that to uh, to Bart, the producer on Drowning Mona. So he comes up to us oh. and he goes, "Remember what you guys did to uh, you know on 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 Panic? <laughs> let's do that. Let's do that again. You know, to this producer." And Dave and I didn't really want to do it, but we figured, okay, let's find a new way to make mileage out of this. So we go up to Bart and we tell Bart that John wants us to do this joke where we call the, where we pretend we're the union and we're, you know, we're turning you in. So we're going to do this and we want you to figure out that it was us and get furious and fire the two of us. <laughs> and Bart was great about it. We, we call him up on the phone and John is watching Bart and John is like, ha ha ha, you know, Bart's getting, getting pranked. And all of a sudden, Bart goes, who the hell is this? And, and then, you know, Dave and I are standing there. Bart loses it and gets pissed off and fires us. And to John's credit, John immediately comes up to Bart and goes, no, 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 it was my idea. I put him up to it. Don't fire him over it. I mean, John totally took the blame for it and, and did everything he could not to get us fired. We <laughs> took it for a long time. I mean, Dave and I just kind of threw our walkies down on the ground and walked off and <laughs> Don't you ever come back again? And John is doing everything he could to sweet talk Bart into hiring us back or not to firing us. So I did respect John for that because you know a lot of a lot of ads would have just been woo and just turned their back and walked away and pretend not to have been involved. John was willing to take that bullet. Yeah, yeah, not surprisingly. When you speak into that scene with the background and the bowling alley, am I recalling correctly that that's where we had our rap party at the end of the show? That is where we had our rap party. That was fun. Yeah, I remember not being much of a bowler myself, but uh, all in all, I just, again, new to the business, a uh, couple of movies under my belt, not all of which were um, quite as cohesive a crew as this one was. Yeah, it's few and far between. All the movies that I feel that way I've done with Scotty, I think, because like Drowning Mona was kind of like that. Yeah, and Replicate was amazing. Replicate would be a, a good podcast movie as well yeah let's just let's uh, find a third person from the show and then we'll schedule some time the, um, denny, uh, denny guy you were talking about earlier who? denny denny clark no danny anyway he <laughs> david, was on that. david clark david, david clark, clark. Yes. uh he was on that as well mm -hmm. I will preview of coming attractions we'll have to we'll get uh, <laughs> we'll get mr clark on uh on one of these shows as well as soon as we can
But I was going to say, just uh, a really nice experience working with you guys and so nice sketching up. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Likewise. Sorry I had to walk off. I usually don't have that kind of attitude. <laughs> it's good that you tack that at the end in case anyone is learning about you for the first time, Scott. Uh, we'll let them be their own judge about whether you have uh, uh, set-worthy professional behavior. Check his recent references, not just us. Um, in any case, for those who are listening to the show and maybe haven't seen Panic, it's worth checking out. Critics loved it, and the crew loved it as well. Uh, once again, guys, thanks for uh, joining me here on Below the Line. It's been a pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Thank you, Skid. Okay, and that's a wrap. Special thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. If you have thoughts about this show or the podcast in general, please send them to Skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. You can also visit our Facebook page. Next episode, we'll be laughing about Sex and Death 101, a 2007 black comedy written and directed by Daniel Waters and starring Simon Baker and Winona Ryder. I hope you'll join us. Bye.